I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Recently, Pizza Hut unveiled their newest diabolical creation, a pizza with hot dogs rolled into the crust. So now not only can you chow down on a slice of Canadian bacon, sausage, and pepperoni, but now you don't have to go vegetarian when you get to the crust. Well, in case that's not enough for you to go running for the Lipitor, Livewire has obtained Pizza Hut's full list of upcoming menu items. Here's what you can look forward to. Pizza Hut's new Carnivorous features 12 different meat toppings, but replaces the cheese with tasty slices of Grecian hero meat, tomato sauce with salty au jus, and swaps out the dough with a whole slab of Tennessee short ribs. Mmm, meat. Heart disease may take years to kill you, but Pizza Hut's new Bombay Surprise Pizza comes with an actual living Indian King Cobra in every box. Our delivery guys have been instructed to give each box a hearty shake just to make sure the little scamp is good and angry. Their bite will make sure you're dead in 30 minutes or it's free. Do you like eating to the extreme? Their new Point Break pizza is designed by skydivers. Pull the cord and instead of a parachute, out pops a large sausage and mushroom pizzone. It won't slow your free fall, but it is the only way to fill up all the way down. Whoa. But if you still need more danger in your life, there's something you can have that even Pizza Hut won't sign off on. Banned in Greenland, disavowed by the CIA, and unheeded by reckless youth. It's got a license to thrill, a North Korean passport, and it is currently unfastening your bra. It's... It's... Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. It's Livewire, the radio show that just ordered the Bombay Surprise with Extra Cobra. Tonight, paper money expert David Woolman, healthiest man alive, AJ Jacobs, and music from Lostlander. That's tonight on Livewire Radio. Welcome. 
Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hallmeister. And you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, wherein Scott sits in our audience and in just one hour, the time it took Snooky to realize that a ghostwriter isn't actually a ghost. He writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned during the show. And music from our house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Thanks, Ralph. So later in the show, we will hear from David Woolman. He's written a book called The End of Money, which takes a critical look at cash in our culture. And we'll also talk to A.J. Jacobs. Uh, his book, Drop Dead Healthy, chronicles his year trying to become the healthiest man alive. And one of the subjects he covers in his, in his book is mindful eating. It's a technique practiced by Buddhist monks wherein you eat without any distractions, not even conversation. And this allows you to not only savor your food, but to be more in tune to when your body has had enough of it. And for his book, Jacobs visited uh, what he calls pro-chewing websites and advocates who extol the virtues of what they call chewdayism. In some cases, recommending chewing each bite for a full minute before swallowing. And since I'm currently uh, trying to eat less things that are likely to kill me, I thought that this would be the perfect experiment to go through before talking to Jacobs about the book. One meal's worth of mindful eating, chewing each bite for a minute, no distractions. So I sat on my dining room table with a bowl of beans and brown rice and a large glass of water. Bite one. Time I was able to chew before swallowing, 14 seconds. <laughs> How am I bad at chewing? This changes everything I thought I knew about myself. <laughs> Bite two, chew time, 26 seconds. And you may think I'm weak, and I am in other ways, but it actually feels involuntary. What happens is that as you chew, the food starts moving toward the back of your mouth, and your tongue does this reflexive thing where it tries to push the food toward your throat, and your brain just starts screaming, for the love of God, swallow! We're about to drown in chewed beans and rice! Or at least my brain screamed that. Um, so then, bite three... Chew time, 54 seconds, but I cheated by tipping my head forward. And this is when I realized I'm not eating mindfully right now. I'm, I'm not tasting the food. I'm just obsessively counting bites and then staring at a timer. So I just decided I'm going to sit and eat. I'm going to sit and eat and see what happens. So bite four, I do taste the food more. The tang of the lime juice and cilantro are brought out by the perfect amount of salt and the soft consistency of the beans. Is that a cobweb hanging from the ceiling fan? How long has that been there? Was that there for the party I had last weekend? Because that is embarrassing. Bite five. I love how the velvety beans mix with the nutty. How did I even allow myself to gain weight anyway? I have the self-control of a five-year-old. I want Cocoa Puffs, I want French fries, I want three gin and tonics and a fluff and utter sandwich. Oh, what would marshmallow fluff taste like on these beans? <laughs> Bite eight. Man, this rice tastes really ricey. It's almost a parody of itself. This rice is so meta. Oh, you know what would be cool? A food babysitter. You hire someone to meet you at your house when you come home from work, and they hang out with you until you go to sleep, and they watch you while you eat with this quiet disdain just right under the surface. Oh, I wonder if my mom would do that for me. I wonder what my mom's cooking right now. I'm 
not going to go on, but you get the idea of how this went for me. Not well. But it did lead me to one huge realization. Eating is boring. Without friends or a book or the television, eating on its own is just a repetitive physical task. One that brings about a pleasant sensation, absolutely. But in terms of sheer entertainment value, it just doesn't have much staying power. A fact that made me do something I never do. I set my bowl aside before I finished it. In a turn of events worthy of a trumpet flourish, my short attention span won bragging rights over my obsession with food. So I get it now. The extreme chewing movement is hoping to bore people to health. And if health is to be my new religion, I may just be a convert to Chudaism after all. So we've had our musical guest on the show before in another incarnation. Matt Sheehy was just Matt Sheehy a few years ago. But last year he embarked on a new record uh, with his current incarnation, the band Lostlander. The record was produced by Brent Knopf, the former Menomina frontman who is in another band with Sheehy called Ramona Falls. And it's, it all sounds a little convoluted, but the result is simple. The lush, layered sounds that Paste Magazine has deemed mini-epics on their first record, Dirt. Please welcome Lost Lander to Livewire. I gotta turn it off Cold feet in a tie Rise to the occasion A million tiny flashlights I gotta turn it off For a while I'll keep Turn it off. Oh, sleep for 
Welcome back to the show, Matt Sheehy. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks for joining us. Thank you um, so much for having us. This is a this is a great record, and some of the songs on this on this record, and that song in particular, felt to me about um, sort of this disconnection from nature and and sort of each other. Um, we talked last time uh, you were on the show about you you having this job as a forester. That's right. Yeah. And you still have this job, and I understand um, that last summer you you had some adventures. Yeah, yeah. Dave, Dave and I worked together in the woods. We had a project, and Dave and I worked in the woods, and uh, uh, it turned out to be a record bee season, like a record number of bees were making their homes in the woods. And, nice. Uh, clap, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not sure if it's the bees that you're thinking of. These are, have you heard, or have you heard, have you seen The Hunger Games or read the books? <laughs> you, you, know, you know those, um, those, yeah, yeah, what are they called again? Tracker jackers, yeah, those are those are what we ran into in the woods. They were just like these evil, evil bees that um, were everywhere, and Dave got stung. Yeah, we, well, we all kind of got stung. We learned about the the Justin O. Schmidt uh, pain index. It's a it's a five point scale used to to rate bee pain. Wow, that's so specific. Yeah, yeah, it's very specific. <laughs> Well, we're looking forward to your second song. That was fantastic. Everybody, it's Lost Lander. Thanks. If you've just joined us, you're tuned in to Livewire Radio, and thanks for listening. And no, you're not experiencing deja vu. It's just summer, and our cast and crew are all oiled up by the pool, so this is a rebroadcast of the show. If you're in the Portland area, our live tapings start again on Saturday, September 8th at the Alberta Rose Theater. You can find more information on those shows and how to help sustain LiveWire's future at LiveWireRadio.org. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Livewire. And now Livewire presents 30 seconds for our listeners in Vietnam. Ngồi hát khúc ca ngày xưa. Đó là Kha Hyuk, nói đại hành vàng. Yo Li Hai Thuyên Bài. Sao đây là điều báo thổi xuyên Thứ sáu, Joy Nang Đẹp Nhưng xí à mua vào Thứ bài và chào nhiệt Cảm ơn quý vị đã nhắn về 
That was 30 seconds for our listeners in Vietnam. Cam Phan of Hanoi and Han Win in Da Nang, we love your letters. Thanks for listening to the show. From all of us at Livewire, to the both of you, Gang Um, Jut Nu! That was Sean McGrath. Our next guest is a contributing editor at Wired Magazine, and you may have also seen his work in The New York Times, Mother Jones, Salon, and the Best American Science Writing Series. His long-form story about Egyptian revolutionaries, The Instigators, was recently nominated for a 2012 National Magazine Award for reporting. David has written three books, including A Left Hand Turn Around the World, Writing the Mother Tongue, and his most recent, The End of Money, a globetrotting look into the past and future of cash that may leave you puzzling over the contents of your wallet. Tonight, he brings us an exclusive excerpt of a true story that will appear in the June issue of Wired about a counterfeiter with the heart of an artist. Please welcome David Woolman to Livewire. Making money. On a bright May afternoon in 2007, a German artist and printmaker named Hans Jürgen Kuhl took a seat at an outdoor cafe directly opposite the colossal facade of the Cologne Cathedral. He ordered an espresso, a slice of plum cake, lit a lucky strike, and watched for the buyer. She was due any minute. Kuhl, a lanky 65-year-old, had sold plenty of artwork over the years, but this batch was altogether different. He needed to be patient. On the other side of a low brick wall surrounding the cafe, he finally spotted her. Tall, blonde, and trim, Suzanne Falkenthal looked about 30. As was the case during their previous meetings, she wore practical shoes, an unremarkable blouse and pair of pants, and little makeup. Cool thought her plain look was something of a contradiction for a businesswoman who drove a black BMW convertible, but no matter. They greeted each other with a kiss on each cheek. Over the past few months, they had met several times at Kuhl's studio. Falkenthal had said she was an events manager from Lithuania and that she did a lot of work for Russian clients. Her German was flawless. At one point, she mentioned to Kuhl that fake US $100 bills were sometimes a problem at exclusive events organized by her firm. He sympathized and mentioned a couple of tricks for detecting forgeries. It's easy to see and feel if it's fake or not, he told her. A few weeks later, Falkenthal told Kuhl that she had a high-end party coming up in August. Would he be interested in printing the 300 tickets for it, plus an extra 50 that she could sell on the side? Kuhl said yes. She's obviously not the Pope, he thought. It was then that he decided to take his chances with Falkenthal. He knew from experience that there were risks, that she might be bait. But he tended to trust people. So Kuhl showed her a counterfeit $100 bill that he had made and asked that she show it to one of her Russian contacts. Falkenthal called a few weeks later. Her contact was impressed with the sample 
and interested in a purchase. They started with a test batch of $250,000, which was bought for 22,000 euros. The price was typical for forgeries, which sell at a steep discount because so much of the risk is borne by the buyer. Kuhl told her, if the contact is satisfied with this first installment, we should talk. Ten days later, she got back to him. The man was happy with the fakes and wanted more. How about 6.5 million? Seated at the cafe across from the cathedral that afternoon, Kuhl handed Falkenthal a note with a price for this new order, 533,000 euros. She agreed. They decided to make the handoff the next day at his studio. Falkenthal added that she would bring her own boxes. After all, $6.5 million in cash weighs about 150 pounds. Kuhl's counterfeiting career had begun a decade earlier at Cologne's Café Cento. Together with other members of what he thought of as his gang, he would spend afternoons at the café, eating pastries, smoking, and talking about the good old days of fast cars, drugs, music, girls, and the energy they once possessed to keep up with it all. They referred to one another with mobster-like nicknames, the Belgian, the Smiler, the Traveler, and Mr. Special. Known as the Dove, Kuhl occupied a strange position within this milieu of part-time crooks and schemers. He was like them, in that law-abiding people tended to bore him, and the idea of settling down with a family was of zero interest. But he was an artist and tinkerer, not a goon. One of his favorite pastimes was visiting Cologne's Ludwig Museum to visit its stellar collection of works by pop art masters like Jasper Johns, Robert Rauschenberg, and Andy Warhol. Kuhl is tall with hazel eyes, a prominent nose, and a scar overriding much of his right eyebrow. He first began painting when he was 10, but fell in love with silkscreen printing when he first saw Warhol. I was like, wow, so easy, but so different. On a technical level, however, he found the work lacking. When he saw Warhol's flowers, for example, he thought, give me four days and I could do that. Better even, I wouldn't use so much pink. Before long, he was producing Warhol imitations, and by the early 80s, he was making something of a name for himself, with prints that closely mimicked Warhol's Cologne Cathedral, flowers, Mao, and other images. A German newspaper once dubbed him the Warhol of Cologne. The prints weren't counterfeits. Kuhl signed his own name and felt that forging another artist's signature was just wrong. But long-term financial security eluded Kuhl. He liked to party and seemed constitutionally unable to plan past the following Saturday. By the late 90s, as his money troubles mounted, he was suddenly presented with a chance to fix things. An associate of the Café Cento gang had arranged a deal, something to do with Saudi businessmen and a Swiss financier. Kuhl didn't know the specifics and didn't much care. What mattered was the promise of nearly $100,000 in exchange for printing $5 million in fake U.S. currency. I could really be free again to do whatever I want, like finally open a gallery. So in 1998, Kuhl took out a loan to buy a used offset printing machine. Then he bought huge sheets of high-quality paper and began mixing inks 
for what would turn out to be his warm-up run at the $100 bill. Most counterfeits are produced on desktop laser printers and can't buy much of anything before they're spotted and pulled from circulation. But with his technical know-how and exacting craftsmanship, Kuhl placed himself among a rarefied class of counterfeiters who can make truly high-quality fakes. Unfortunately for Kuhl, the deal with the Saudis turned out to be a sting, and in 1999, he and a few others were arrested. Kuhl was convicted of making counterfeit money, but released early on probation when a judge concluded that the police may have been overzealous in their tactics. After that, Kuhl tried to get back to the simpler and safer life of a graphic printer, but one aspect of the bust stuck in his head. An expert witness from Germany's central bank had extolled the quality of Kuhl's forgeries. There was also something poetic, he thought, about demonstrating to the world that those coveted, almost sacred U.S. dollars are nothing more than intricate images mass-produced on fancy paper. In a way, that point of view itself was borrowed from Warhol, who once wrote that making money is art and working is art and good business is the best art. Seven years after Kuhl's first arrest, a sorter at a garbage center in Cologne saw something odd. A torn plastic bag overflowing with shredded paper bearing the unmistakable pale green coloring of U.S. currency. Then he found six others just like it. When he first saw the mountain of shredded paper, federal criminal police investigator Martin Becker wasn't worried that people in his country might be undermining faith in the currency that also happens to be the backbone of the international monetary system. He thought, oh God, this is going to be a ton of work. The rule of thumb with counterfeiting, Becker says, is that the waste paper represents about 10% of the volume of fake money in production. Based on that formula, Kuhl could have forged 30, possibly even 40 million dollars, making him perhaps the most prolific individual counterfeiter in the history of money. Now all Becker had to do was catch him. Thank you. David Woolman. Tonight's show is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Markets, reminding you that with fresh fruits and vegetables in abundance, spring is a great time to start eating healthier. And with the Whole Foods Health Starts Here label can help with the four pillars, whole unprocessed foods, a plant-strong diet, healthy fats, and foods rich in micronutrients. Wherever you are, health starts here. More information can be found at wholefoodsmarket.com. So if effort is any indication, our next guest should be the greatest person in the history of the world. In an effort to improve himself, he has read the Encyclopedia Britannica from A to Z for his book, The Know-It-All. He tried to follow every rule in the Bible for his book, The Year of Living Biblically. And in one mission to improve every aspect of his life, he did things like follow George Washington's 110 rules of life and outsource every one of his tasks to India for a month for his book, My Life is an Experiment. Each experiment has resulted in a New York Times best-selling book, and his most recent book is no exception. In it, he's moved on to the simple goal of becoming the healthiest man alive. 
For two years, he stroller-sized, he engaged in extreme chewing, and he even performed odor workouts to improve his sense of smell. What has come of all of it is his newest book, Drop Dead Healthy, One Man's Quest for Bodily Perfection. Please welcome A.J. Jacobs to Livewire. Welcome to the show, AJ. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. So my first question for you is really, you have, you've, this is the third in a trilogy of books where you are striving to make yourself better. Where did this impulse come from for you? Well, I, I need a lot of improvement. Do you? So, but uh, the way I like to write is to totally immerse myself in my topic and just dive in, become a human guinea pig. So when I want to learn about improving my spirit, I thought, well, one way to do it would be to actually read the Bible and do exactly what it says. For a year. For a year. For a year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so how did you approach becoming the healthiest man alive? Well, this one, I, uh, I got a board of advisors, so I had doctors and nutritionists and trainers, and then I, decided, I wrote down every piece of health advice I could, and there were hundreds of pieces, and I decided I'm going to try to follow them all and see what works and what doesn't, and I'm going to try to improve every part of my body, so my heart, my stomach, uh, my brain, my butt was, uh, was part of it, Absolutely. my hands, so the whole thing. Yeah, you, you did finger exercises. I did, I did. Point. I studied with, he calls himself, the Richard Simmons of hands. So I have, <laughs> I have incredibly nimble and you, fingers you learned now. how to walk as well, correctly. What's that? You learned how to walk correctly. Yeah, I did take well. walking lessons. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, I was walking incorrectly. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> So one of the things that, in terms of, uh, of sort of making this happen, that you talk about in the book is this thing called egonomics. Can you explain what those are? Yeah, well, a part of it is how do you motivate yourself to act in a healthy way? And there's this theory called egonomics. It was uh, uh, came up with by a Nobel Prize winning economist. And he says that we have two selves. And these selves are at war. We've got the self, the present self, that just wants to sit on the couch and eat Pop-Tarts all day. And then we've got the future self that wants that present self to get off off the couch. So you've got to keep that future self in mind. You've got to treat that future self with respect. And I thought this was very interesting, but it's so vague and how to abstract. How How do I make that future self more present? So I actually took my photo, and you can go on the internet and find these sites that will digitally age your photo. So I digitally aged my photo to about 80 years. I look horrible, by the way. (laughs) I look like I have some sort of biblical skin disease. Uh, But hopefully I look a little better than that in real life. Anyway, I put that photo on the wall, and it's really motivated me. It's in a weird way. I look at my older self, and I'm like... I should do something for that guy. I want, him, I want to be around for him. Maybe he's having a rough day. That's right. You know? <laughs> Maybe go running today for him. Well, and one of the things, one of the things that you did in order to, to better your body was that you created a treadmill desk, and you actually you walked around 1,000 miles while writing this book on the desk. 
Did writing on a, tread, on a treadmill desk change the way that you wrote in any way? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I actually, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to do it, but I am totally uncoordinated, and right. I was able to do it, so I think anyone can do it. Uh, and this is a movement. I didn't come up with it myself, but there's a movement of people who, do the, who work on a treadmill. They're called treadheads, they call themselves. <laughs> and, uh, and so I did it, and... I think, it, you know, it helped my energy. It kept my energy up. Uh, now, the problem is now when I try to work at a, a regular desk, I fall asleep. Oh, so no. It's, it's had a little bit of an effect that way. But uh, Did but you I see love any it. difference in your writing when you looked at the, the stuff that you wrote on the treadmill as opposed hopefully to... Hopefully it's more energetic. Uh, you know, it's hard for me to judge, but, uh, but hopefully it is, uh, you know, maybe a couple more typos, but not many. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and another thing that you talk about in the book is mental health, and there's this great quote, um, without some delusional optimism, you'll suffer from depressive realism. Can you explain that quote? Oh, yeah. Well, I, uh, you know, the studies show, unfortunately, the people with the, the most accurate assessment of reality are clinically depressed. <laughs> it's really... So, uh, so I'm not a huge fan of reality. I think that... <laughs> I think reality is overrated. So I am all for delusional optimism, seeing the glass, you know, because I think in reality the glass is like 5% full, maybe. Uh, but uh, you got to get delusional optimism to bring it up to 50% full. Right. And if you're just tuning in, uh, we, you're listening to Livewire Radio, and we are talking to A.J. Jacobs about his book, Drop Dead Healthy. And in the book, you talk about how you're a warrior. Uh, right. A warrior, not a, not a guy with a sword. Um, and a lot of us are warriors. And how did you deal with your worries when you were writing the book? Well, I had several strategies. One I found very effective. Just to back up, you mentioned it briefly. A few years ago, I wrote an article for Esquire magazine, where I work, called My Outsource Life. Yes. And I hired this team of people in Bangalore, India, to do everything for me. So they answered my phone calls for me. They answered my emails. They argued with my wife for me, <laughs> which was fantastic. Uh, it was the greatest month of my life. So uh, a reader wrote in during this past year while I was trying to be healthy and said, I really like this idea of outsourcing. What if I outsourced my worries to you and you outsourced your worries to me? So we did a worry trade-off. You, she was a, actually, she lived in Portland. She was a young uh, high school student applying to college. And she said, you worry for me about getting into college. And I'll worry for you about meeting your book deadline. And so I was like, all right, this is an interesting idea. And I did it. And I got to tell you, it was so effective. It was great. Because I knew someone was worrying about it for me. You know, <laughs> it was being taken care of. But I didn't have the horrible emotional toll of, of doing it myself. And the I was stress. Just, yeah. Right? And I, the stress so, on your body. That's right. It was, and stress is horrible for you, as you know. So uh, I really do recommend this. Trade worries with someone. It really, it, it really will change your life. Well, and it was interesting because you would say that you would start worrying about your deadline and then as soon as you did, you'd remember that someone else was taking care of it for exactly. you. So it turned in, if you do it enough, maybe you'll just, you'll never worry, except about other people's stuff. There you go. Whoever you traded with. It's the secret um, to life. That's this, it. <laughs> this is sort of, uh, you know, jumping topics, but can you explain why you had your wife write a check for $1,000 to the Nazi party? <laughs> yeah, just to clarify before, <laughs> it was not cashed. Uh, but this was a, uh, 
This was a way to stop and break bad habits. Uh, and again, this was actually another Nobel Prize winning economist said, you have to have a big disincentive. And one disincentive is giving away money. If you smoke that cigarette, you have to give away $500. Now, you could give it to a good cause, but if you want a real disincentive, you got to give it to some horrible people. So... <laughs> So I asked my wife, I, had, I was totally addicted to these, uh, these dried mangoes, which are allegedly healthy, but they're actually just horrible there for you. They're, ju- they're just Snickers Sugar. disguised as mangoes. So I, uh, I said, listen, would you write me a check, uh, write a check for $1,000 in my name and uh, to the Nazi party, and if I eat a dried mango, you have to send it. And she's like, all right. She actually got into it. She liked this. And she, uh, so she put it on the memo, uh, you know, dried mangoes for the Nazi party. And uh, th- Didn't I she say something like, love A.J. Jacobs in the <laughs> <Exactly>. memo? <laughs> I physically could not eat the mangoes because it was such a repulsive idea to me that these guys would be getting, you know, new jackboots or whatever uh, from <laughs> my money, that I could not eat it. So it is a very effective a, way to... It sounds really effective. Yeah. But this also, this brought up the idea of your, your wife, um, mm. your long-suffering wife. Um, you actually, uh, at one point when your life was an experiment, uh, you, you practiced radical honesty for a month where you never lied. Right. And yeah. then the month immediately after, you uh, did everything that your wife asked you for a month. That's true. That one she liked. Yeah, the radical honesty she did not like. This was a movement started by a psychologist in Virginia who believes that you should never lie. But he goes farther. He says, whatever's on your brain should come out of your mouth. No filter. Mm -hmm. So I tried that for a month, and it was horrible. It was the worst month of my life. And, you know, to give you an example of what she put up with, we went to a restaurant, and we saw some friends of hers from college, and, and they said, oh, we should all get together, have a play date with our kids. And I had to say what was on my mind, which was, you seem like nice people, but I just don't want to ever see you again. <laughs> uh, and that did not... It did not go over. Because I didn't have time to see my real friend, you know? I thought I didn't... But... Uh, sure. They were upset. She was upset. She may have been a little upset about that. I will say this, though. Uh, We have not seen them again. So it was was a little bit effective. Problem solved. Problem solved. There are advantages to radical honesty. Your wife's name is Julie. Mm. Did Julie have any idea what she was getting into when she married you? Did she know that... that, Because her life changes when your life changes. That is true. Yeah, no, I don't know. She's here. I don't think she did know. She's very patient, though. Uh, And, you know, this year of living healthily... She definitely she put up with a lot but compared to the year I followed the Bible this was fantastic because in the Bible it says you have to grow your beard so I had this huge topiary on my chin and there's another part in Leviticus it says you cannot touch a woman during her time of month and if you are really paying attention to Leviticus it says you cannot sit in a seat where a woman in her time of month has sat because that the seat is impure, and then you become impure. And my wife found that offensive, so she sat in every seat in our apartment. <laughs> and so, well so done, she finds Julie. a way to get back at me, yeah. <laughs> 
So you did so many things over the course of... This was a two-year period. You did so many things over the course of the two years. What were the things that for you now have staying power that you have integrated into your life? Well, certainly, uh, I I believe uh, I was shocked by how bad sitting at your desk all day is for you. I mean, it is. the studies are really alarming. Uh, I just read today about a new donut, a a deep-fried pork donut. And that is... Basically, the doctors say sitting is the equivalent of a deep-fried pat, fat, uh, pork donut. It's really bad for you. So uh, when I am sitting at my desk, I try to get up every hour, walk around for a couple of minutes. And as you mentioned, I took it further. I wrote on my treadmill. So, and also incorporating physical movement, exercise into every part of your day. So... Uh, you know, I uh, take the stairs. I started to run errands. You know, that's the phrase is run errands. So I was like, all right, let me try it. So I would run to the drugstore, buy toothpaste, and run back home. And, and you, you have periodically had pedestrians ask you if you're okay or if the... It does, it does terrify some people if, yeah, <laughs> sprinting down the street. But, uh, but I found it very effective. So uh, those are just a couple. And then in terms of eating, you know, uh, I'm so glad you tried Judaism, even if you're not a convert. Uh, <laughs> I am, I like to say, I don't practice Orthodox Judaism, but I do practice Reform Judaism. I, I do like 15 chews per mouthful. And it's very effective because it does slow down your eating. And uh, it, it doesn't just slow down your eating, but it seems to aid in digestion. Like it's just, it, you feel better after you've done that. There you go. You know? Exactly. Um, but I'm not a fan of feeling better. I'm really not. Um, <laughs> So I did want to ask, there have been, I think, four books now, really, there, there's been, uh, you know, the, reading the entire Encyclopedia Britannica to, to help your brain, um, this book, so you've done all this striving to become a better person, do you feel like a better person than you were when you first started all of this? I do feel like a little bit of a better person. You know, I can't, I don't want to say, like, I'm the healthiest person alive because then tomorrow I'm going to get, you know, river blindness or some horrible (laughs) rickets. I just know that's the way life works. If you say, oh, I'm doing great, then the next day you're doing horrible. But so far, I do feel better, you know, uh, and then in terms of the the Bible, I actually, I, I still lie and covet and gossip all the time, but I think like 30% less. So I think that that's is That's great. Like, yeah. That's, that's a something. great number. That's something. So what's next for you? What's the next thing? What's the next year? Well, my kids have a lot of, my kids want me to do a year of eating nothing but candy. They said <laughs> that was a good idea. But honestly, I'm not sure yet. It usually a month after my current book. My current book just came out, so I usually choose it about a month after. Wow. Well, we're looking forward to it. The book is Drop Dead Healthy. The author is A.J. Jacobs. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. A.J. Jacobs, everybody. Welcome to 
Let's get lit, y'all. The call-in show for bookish types. I'm your host, Tabitha Marcus. Today on the show, we have author Constance Yardley. Welcome, Constance. Thank you. Now, your book was published just two weeks ago, but it's already getting some great press. It's a pretty darn original premise. Can you tell us what it's about? Of course. Well, essentially, I chose one person, and then I spent a full year doing every single thing that person did. Uh, It took a lot of persistence, but I did it. And what's the book? called? It's called The Year of Living A.J. Jacobsley. Fascinating. Now, A.J. Jacobs... Uh, New York Times bestselling author A.J. Jacobs. I mean, he's obviously got this thing dialed in. So I thought he'd be better to follow than, say, an Elizabeth Gilbert or an Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway's dead. Hmm. Well, maybe I should have followed him. Would have been a lot easier. (laughs) Okay. So what sort of things did you do for this book? Oh, it was crazy. We went to nutritionists and sleep therapists and ate vegan. And oh, we went to this brain resource center. Now, when you say we, you mean AJ and me. Now, how did that work? Oh, it was so easy. I just fashioned a small fort out of some cardboard, Zabar's bags, and the recycling bins in front of his apartment building. And then when he would leave, I'd just follow him. (gasps) Innovative. Did he ever see you? You know, a few times. But the disguises threw him off. (gasps) What disguises? Oh, let's see. Uh, I was a mid-18th century serving wench. I was a carnival barker, Lorraine Bracco, and uh, once, rather memorably, uh, Bill Cosby. Ooh, the Cosby. <laughs> that one did not work out. Most of the time, though, I was an Indonesian prince. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, let's take some calls. We have uh, AJ from New York. AJ, you're on the air. Are you out of your mind? Good question, AJ. Constance? <laughs> well, it was a challenging year. No, really. But... Are you clinically insane? You can't stalk someone for a year and then write a book about it. I think you can. Do you know how much research I did to write my book? How many different people I talked to? How much I went through? I I actually do. Pretty much exactly. (laughs) You are a terrible stalker. You look nothing like Lorraine Bracco. There's no reason a carnival barker would be in the middle of Fifth Avenue on a Thursday afternoon. And Bill Cosby would never crawl into the back of our minivan on the way to the Hamptons. You know what? You were the Indian prince who tried to pick up my son from school. Oh, that was a very effective mustache. Uh, Little known fact, I grew it myself. (laughs) And also the Indonesian prince who tried to sleep with my wife? That was research. Okay, I'm calling the cops. Where's the studio? (laughs) Like I'm going to fall for that one again. All righty, let's take a quick break on Let's Get Lit, y'all. First station identification. Uh Uh-oh, it's the fuzz! Who says the fuzz? Who says that? That was Trisha Ferguson, David Ian, and A.J. Jacobs. And now it's time for some teeny tiny tales, some Lilliputian literature. It's time for Livewire's Flash Fiction. Tonight, our audience has been given the Herculean task of writing an entire story in just six words based on a prompt. Tonight, in honor of A.J. Jacobs, our prompt is, My Life as an Experiment. Members of Faces for Radio Theater have their top picks and will now read them with the help of Thulu fan and closet astrophysicist Ralph Huntley. And now, Flash Fixin'.
Brandon writes, thought I'd have results by now. It's a slow burn. It's a slow burn. Anne writes, fire is hot. Now I know. Hannah writes, took the past off speed dial. Lorraine writes, identical twin bred for extra parts. Charlene writes, was test tube baby, says brother. Stu writes, never mind the probes, I feel fine. Great job, audience, on Audience Flash Fiction. Flash Fiction was brought to you tonight, as always, by New Belgium Brewing Company. This month, they're featuring their Shift Pale Lager. It's a beer as a reward for a job well done, crafted by New Belgium's employee owners for an end-of-shift beer that you can have at the end of any shift, work or PlayStation or napping. The list is endless. Thanks, New Belgium. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Lost Lander.
Lostlander. And now, as promised, the man who has been writing this entire hour while we've been playing. To sum it all up for us, please welcome poet Scott Poole. <laughs> What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned tonight that if I ever somehow become a Zen monk, after I learned to eat a single cracker over the period of an entire month of transcendent bliss in which I thought I was Grover from Sesame Street, that I'm going to order a pizza and test my Zen teacher. When the pizza guy shows up at the door of the temple and rings the doorbell, a thousand white chrysanthemums will echo the rings with their petals. A clutch of doves will fly through the colonnade like a million tiny flashlights suddenly turning off. And every bee will comb back the fur on its neck, and water will drop off the end of a bamboo reed designed a hundred years ago to mark this exact moment in time crumbling to dust upon reaching the wet birth of its destiny. And after a great pause, equal to the time it takes for a cat to understand the softness of its paw while it's being photographed for Facebook, and after the time it takes to realize the pain in biting down on a match that is still alive with fire, after the time it takes to wear a plain practical blouse and drive a convertible VW Bug while turning your life into a pile of confiscated money, that's when my small old master, still eating a dinner from 46 years ago, will open the great oak door and gaze upon the 17-year-old acne-bespeckled face. And for the period of approximately 17 minutes, with clouds passing behind the head of the pizza guy, and the pizza guy looking at his future self, and the monk looking at what he thinks is a short Tyrannosaurus Rex because he's completely hallucinating, they will simply stare at each other. And finally, after the time it takes a mango to part from a branch and drop into a pond, disturbing a Nazi lazing beside a pond on a picnic blanket, the pizza guy will say, 12 95 
and the monk will open his mouth like a cave emerging from the crumbling sea, a crumbling sea cliff over several centuries of pounding salty surf and say, ah, crap, who's got the checkbook? <laughs> and that will totally rule. For a Zen monk, it doesn't get any funnier than that. Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests tonight, David Woolman, A.J. Jacobs, and Lost Lander. The Mutton Shops are Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and David Jorgensen, now featuring their new record of 99 songs of 30 seconds or less at mchops.com. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Dave's Killer Bread, and Burgerville with Burgerville Radio, featuring music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you find people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson, and master of sound David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse and house poet Scott Poole, with guest writer B. Frame Masters. Faces for Radio Theater was directed tonight by Phil Incorvaya. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom, with house sound by Scott McLeod. Stage management by Graham Nystrom. Thank you to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Von Drele and Ralph Huntley. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered? right to your heart and ears each week. Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.